begin with prayer. Lord God, we come to you today and we're grateful that you are with us and that you have made yourself self-accessible through your Son that you've installed at the right hand. You've made a way for us to draw near to his throne and ask for mercy and help in time of need. And we ask for that this morning. And we ask also that you would open our ears to hear your word and to be encouraged by your word and to have our faith built into you, into your son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what I wrote up behind me is the, uh, that is the text that the author of Hebrews is going to exposit for us this morning. He spends the entire chapter of 7 basically devoted to explaining pretty much every word of this. And we'll see that as we go. So I'm leaving that up in the background. I'm not going to necessarily refer to it all the time. I just want you to see there's some, there's, everything that's going on today kind of hangs on this. Which is a neat thing about the author of Hebrews. He, he takes Old Testament texts and he exposits them. You've seen that pattern throughout. This chapter 7 is going to be this, this text. Like in previous texts, he did Psalm 95 and chapter 3 and chapter 1. He, did, he actually did verse 1 of Psalm 110 in, verse, in chapters 1 and 2. The same psalm. Verse 1 is also quoted extensively early in the book. That's the one that says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Right? And that was, he exposited that in chapters 1 and 2. Now he's gone down to verse 4 and he's going to talk about something else that goes on with that song. But before we do need to pick up where we left off because we actually didn't finish chapter 6 last week. Um, we got through verse 10, or uh, I got the wrong notes up. You guys have the right notes. We got through verse 12. Yes. <laughs> Let me bring up the right notes so I'm talking about this week and not last week. And remember last week there was a he stopped a discussion about the great high priest. He actually quoted this in chapter 5 and then said, oh, but it's hard to explain because you become dull of hearing and he goes off on this rebuke and he presents another warning in a very personal term that scares them. But then he says, I'm convinced of better things concerning you. That warning was to warn you because I'm, you're you're not that. Because you're not that, I'm not afraid that the warning applies to you. But because you are of the faith of Abraham, as we see, as we'll see today, it's going to work out for you. And you are afraid of that warning because you, you do believe. You do believe. And it, that warning scares you. If it, if it didn't scare you, something's wrong with you. If you're not scared of the warning of chapter 6 and of the earlier warnings of the book, check your spiritual pulse. You may not be a believer. It's one of the ideas that he's presenting. So that's where he's been, and then he's encouraging them. 
And right at the end, in verse 12, just a quick review of that. He says, be earnest in full assurance of hope that you may not be sluggish. And that was the conclusion. It says, I want you to be earnest. We desire for you to be earnest in full assurance of hope. And I said last week that that sounds very familiar because he's going to say that again in chapter 11, verse 1, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So he's really saying the full assurance of hope is really a, it's, it's a leaning into faith. He's, he's giving a hint as to what's going to come. But he also says in verse 12 to be imitators of those who through faith and patience have inherited the promises. And that's where he picks up now. He's going to give us an example of someone to imitate. Be like Abraham. That's the example he brings in chapter 6, verse 13. Because Abraham, the implication is, through faith and patience, he inherited the promises. And he actually says that in verse 15. But what do we, can we learn about about Abraham's faith that's worth imitating. Well, interestingly enough, he's referring, when, he read, when he's talking about this section, he says, um, let me go ahead and read it, get to it. Just read this. Hebrews 6, 13, 14, and 15. For God went, made a promise to Abraham since he had no one greater by whom to swear. He swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now that's, that's kind of coming out of nowhere. It's like he's, God made a promise to Abraham, and he talks about swearing an oath by himself. And then he quotes something. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now, this is an interesting... This is what the author of Hebrews does frequently. He quotes the Old Testament and alludes to the Old Testament all the time. And he expects you to know what he's talking about. But I suspect many of you don't. Because we're not as familiar with the Old Testament as the original audience was, who were Jewish believers so here he is saying, remember that Abraham thing? Do you remember that God swore an oath? And, and, and they said, oh yeah, yeah. And we say, uh, no. What are you talking about? So that's an invitation when you see that to go and find out where this happened. Where did this quote come from? And does your footnote tell you in your ESV or whatever Bible you read? Surely I will bless you and multiply you comes from where? Cited from what? Genesis 22. 22. That's where this is coming from. Now let me go to Genesis 22, verses 16 and 17, and I'll read it to you, and things, hopefully the lights start to come on. This is what he's referring to. Genesis 22, just a background. Genesis 22 is the time that Abraham took his son to Mount Moriah to offer him at God's command. And when he gets up there, he's about, he's got the knife, and God says, Abraham, Abraham. And he looks, here I am, Lord, and then there's a ram caught in the thicket, and he 
it's able to sacrifice the ram instead of, it's a substitute for Isaac. And then after he does this, God does something, says something amazing. And it starts, I'll read it in verse uh, 13. Well, actually, no. Well, I can read it. I can start there. Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know. This is, this is the statement. For I, now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes, looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns. Abraham went took the ram, offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son, and Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh, if you've ever heard those songs from the 70s and 80s. Um, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then verse 15, 16, and 17. And the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn. He just said it. Sworn. The word sworn. Sworn. That's why I made it bigger. Sworn. It's, he's going to get to this. He swears to Abraham. What does he swear? Declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring. That's what he's quoting in Hebrews. That little statement there. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply you. Is what the author of Hebrews just grabs that little phrase out of this. It says this is this is what he swore. He swore this, and he says, when did he swear it? He swore it here. And you see the word swear in Genesis twelve uh, twenty two. There's an oath here that God made to Abraham. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring, which is singular, as the stars of the heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, which is very interesting language. Your singular offspring will possess the gate of his enemies, not your offspring's enemies. And the author of Hebrews is going to get to that later in chapter 11. So we'll leave it. But this statement is kind of in the background, and that's what he's referring to here in Hebrews 6, 13, 14, and 15. There's this oath that God swore to Abraham. And I, I also want you to just, there's other allusions here. You've got Abraham doing a priestly work of offering a ram, ends up being a ram instead of his son. And then God says, surely I will bless you and keep you and, and multiply. And there's, there's something similar going on in Psalm 110, by the way. Jesus makes the priestly sacrifice, purification for sins. God says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And then he swears something to him. He swears this. So right after Jesus does a priestly work on the cross, God enthrones him and declares this. Abraham, see, there's similarities going here. 
Abraham just did a priestly work, and God says, surely, you know, he, he does a swear. He, he swears an oath, kind of alluding to what Jesus is going to do. So that's, that's what's going on in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 14. There's this oath. Now, now he, he latches on to this oath, and he kind of leaves Abraham a bit, a bit, because he's really what he's really interested in is that oath idea, because he's very interested in this. That's what he's doing. He's, he's going to get to this. He says, okay, God swore. God swore something. Now, that's a weird concept. Why would God swear anything? What's the point? The peculiarities of God's oaths. 16 through 18. What's the point of this thing? Well, in a courtroom, oath language provides a legal guarantee to whatever the witness has said. It confirms the truthfulness of that witness's word if he's swearing, and it also can confirm the certainty of what he promises, perhaps. And in the case of God, it's, it's a promise. He's promising to Abraham. But what's interesting about God's oath if you're in a courtroom or if you're in any place in life and people swear, they never swear by themselves. They swear by something greater than themselves. They appeal to the integrity of either God or their mother or whatever. Something better than me. Something has more integrity than me. I swear by so-and-so's grave ancestor that I really respect that I'm telling the truth. Men swear by something greater than themselves. Well, if God's going to swear, who's greater than God? <laughs> and the answer is nobody. So he says, that's, that's why God swore by himself. And remember, the, the swore by himself is not in Hebrews. It's in Genesis 22. It's in that Genesis 22 quote. It said, remember, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. So, the Lord swears by himself, and the author of Hebrews is expositing this Genesis 22 verse that he did not quote, and it makes it confusing for us. It's like, what are you talking about? Well, you've got to go to Genesis 22 to see what he's talking about. He's talking about an oath that God swore by himself to Abraham when Abraham did this high priestly work that he accepted. So God, since he couldn't swear by anybody higher than himself, swears by, well, swears by himself. So that's peculiar of God's oaths. Only God has to do it that way. But then the question is, why is he swearing at all? What's the point? Why does God need to swear? Is he forgetful? Does he need to remind himself? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That Abraham dude. Oh, I said something to him once. It wasn't sand of the seashore. Oh, yeah, yeah. I better remind, remind him. No, it's not because he's forgetful. It's because men need to be encouraged. They need to be encouraged. So what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that God, to encourage us, and you see the word encourage there. Get back to where we are in Hebrews. Where people swear by something greater than themselves, verse 16, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. The oath is 
okay, this is, this is, we can't go, if I, if I swear, it's, this is the best confirmation I can give you. So God's going to do the same language when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. That's the point of this oath language. God is really, really wants to encourage us. And he really, really wants to convince us that what he says is certain, that it's true. And the way he does that, graciously to Abraham, and actually to us too, is he not only gives us a promise, but he interposes with an oath. He says, and just in case you didn't think the promise is good enough, I swear by myself. Okay, so he's using two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie. God's holding himself to this. like, And I'm doing it not for my benefit. I'm doing it for your benefit. Abraham, I want you to be convinced that this seed, this seed that's going to come from Isaac is going to bless the nations one day. It's going to multiply and do things you have no idea. So that was the promise to Abraham. Well, what's the promise to us? The author of Hebrews has actually been getting at that the entire book. He's been giving promises to us. I listed a few of them there. Let's see. For what purpose? To give him strong encouragement, in our case, by several unchangeable things. Here's some of the things he's promised. He's promised a refuge, a refuge from fear. I get the word refuge from our text as well. He says, um, those who have fled for refuge, in verse 18, he's encouraging them. So there's a promise of refuge, and he's talked about this back in chapter 4. It was a, it was a promised rest. A whole chapter devoted to There's a promise of rest, which is rest from what? Rest from suffering, rest from toil, rest from sin, the effects of sin. Rest from all of that, that's like a refuge. He's promised it. He's also promised to help. He, he did that. He said that specifically in two places, Hebrews 2.18. And he repeats it in the command of Hebrews 4.16, talking specifically about Jesus. For because he, Jesus, this is 2.18, because he, Jesus, himself, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And then, the end of chapter 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So there's this promise. Jesus is there. He's there to give refuge, and he's there to give help. And he also gives the promise of a hope that he's referring to here that we can confidently boast in. He mentioned that back in chapter 3, verse 6. Hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. And then right here at the end of the exhortation to the Hebrews who are sluggish, 
don't be sluggish. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So there's this promise of hope. There's this promise of help. There's this promise of refuge. It's all a promise. That's one, actually several unchangeable things. But God, to make it more certain that we may have a stronger encouragement is going to interpose with an oath. This verse is meant to strongly encourage us. And that will become more apparent as we get, get going through this. And I'm going to fly through these six pages of notes because I only have an hour, but the notes are there for your benefit to go back and... I'm kind of going verse by verse and picking out little things. Um, now, verse 19 and 20. <laughs> this is a... Uh, we fled for strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And then he uses this metaphor of an anchor. We have this. This. What is this? It's the hope he just talked about. We have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as the forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's a transitionary statement that he's using to get his audience, who he's got their attention now, he says, okay, remember that Melchizedek word I said back in chapter 5? I'm back to it, and I'm ready, I'm ready to explain it. So it's transitioned back from discussion about the talk of oaths and Abraham and strong encouragement. He's getting back to the high priest. And he, the, the clues there are this hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. He's going to explain that in chapter 9, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He's going to explain that in chapter 12, he's given, he's given hints about what I'm going to get to. He's not going to get to it right now. We're going to talk about this stuff later on. That's one of the interesting things about Hebrews is the connections. He's looking back. He's looking forward to what, what he's going to write. And he's actually giving clues here. Now, one of the interesting things about the anchor, here's some characteristics of the anchor. It's just worth thinking about. He says it right here. It's a sure and steadfast anchor. So the anchor is sure, which means it's certain, unchangeable, unalterable. Sounds like God's oath. So it's oath-like. It doesn't change. It's steadfast, which means it's guaranteed to stay in place over a long time, which sounds like faithfulness. Remember, faithfulness is faith over time. So you have this anchor, which is kind of giving us an idea of what this hope is. It's, it's steadfast, it's certain, it's like an oath, but it's also like faithfulness. And remember, Jesus was described early in the book, in chapter 2, as the faithful high priest. That was 2.17. Jesus as a faithful high priest. Well, this anchor is like a faithful steady, something that doesn't move, that's certain, that you can bank on, if you will. And what do anchors do for ships at sea? Hold them in place. Holds them in place. 
Because if they didn't have the anchor in their and they don't have any propulsion system and there's no wind, they will drift. They will drift. The anchor keeps them from drifting. And that word drift has been used by this author before, too. Remember where that came up. The drifting language. Chapter 2, verse 1. The warning of 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And here's the anchor that keeps us from drifting. He brings that up now. It's anchored in this oath that God has made to this forerunner, Jesus, who's entered within a veil. And I'm going to talk about that eventually when I get to other chapters in the future. But I'm just saying, I'm giving you a clue. Here's how you stop from drifting. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who's got this anchor, and you won't drift. That's, that's what he's communicating in these verses here. Jesus the forerunner. <clears throat> Jesus is called the forerunner here, not the anchor. But the implication is the anchor is like tied to his ankle or something. Like it's going, it's, it's where he is. Wherever Jesus is, there's an anchor of hope fixed on him is the idea. But it's interesting he says forerunner because he hasn't been talking about running races yet. <laughs> but if you know Hebrews, he's going to in chapter 12. He's going to tell us to run the race set before us. Basically following Jesus, the author and the originator and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he ran the race ahead of us, essentially. So he's the forerunner for us. And what did that forerunner do? He's saying here, this hope and this forerunner, they entered within an inner place behind a curtain. He's going to talk about that in chapter 9. That's, that's a tabernacle terminology. And the implication is, is Jesus, <laughs> he went into this curtain area. And unlike all the other high priests who went into the, the, the Holy of Holies in the past, they all had to go in and leave. And they had to go in once a year, once a year and leave. And only one could do it, but every year. The implication is this particular high priest went in and stayed. And he's never left. He's there. What's in that Holy of Holies? The Old Testament called it a mercy seat. Remember God said, sit at my right hand. Imagine him sitting in the mercy seat. In the Holy of Holies. That's where he's at. That's where the hope is anchored. And we have that hope. We have that forerunner. Fix your eyes on him. Run that race. That's, that's a prelude to where the author's taken us, okay? Just in those few verses in chapter 6, and I, I titled those first three pages of my notes, Consider Jesus the one who anchors our soul. It's very worth meditating upon and going, wow. And he's finally gotten us back to the high priest language, the tent and this order of Melchizedek, this high priest thing. And now, chapter 7, he's finally going to get where he wanted to get when he first mentioned this, because he first mentioned this in chapter 5. He quoted it in chapter 5, verse 6. 
And then he said it again in chapter 5, verse 10. And then he digressed into a rebuke and a warning. And then he's getting back to it here. And he's going to stay with it. And he's going to finally, finally exposit it to the max. And that's what chapter 7 is. It's taken this, this verse, this oath, and explaining why this is something we can be strongly encouraged by. And he starts, first of all, he's got to tell us who this Melchizedek is. He said Melchizedek, this is the third, fourth time. He's already said it three times. Now he says it, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, so Abraham's coming back in the picture too, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now he's recalling another story from Genesis which is one of only two other places where Melchizedek is mentioned in this Bible. One of them is in this psalm, and the other one is, other couple places, is in Genesis. And essentially, in the next couple verses, he's going to go to tell us what's significant about this Melchizedek. And he lists them very quickly here in the first four verses of chapter. Seven. First of all, he says he's the king of righteousness. And he gets that by translation of his name, and he says it for us right there. Um, to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And that, that's simply saying his name means, as Richard Friedman just told us before, it, it's made of two Hebrew words, Malik. This is a kind of a Malik here, which means king, and Zedek, which means righteousness. Two Hebrew words put together. So he's the king of righteousness by just by his name. Okay, that's all. Just saying. Oh, by the way, his name means king of righteousness. He doesn't explain any more than that. But we can think about what that means. I just listed a couple things. If he's truly a king, he's got authority to execute justice and power. But if he's a king who's righteous, he can judge between good and evil. And he has the power to reward and the power to punish. Just a quick, quick one. Now, the author of Hebrews doesn't spend any time on this. He just throws it out there. Oh, by the way, his name means king of righteousness. That should clue you in. Because there's another guy you know who's, we could call a king of righteousness too. Guess who? And not only that. He's the king of Salem, which is a place name, a town, a town in Israel. Well, it wasn't Israel at the time. It was, because Abraham predates Israel. He's the father of Israel. But he's dwelling in a town, or he's dwelling near a place named Salem, which we believe today is Jerusalem. I think the Salem is probably pre-Jerusalem is where this king was king. And what does Salem mean? Salem is just another name, but it means something. It's actually not pronounced Salem in Hebrew. How is it pronounced? Shalom. Shalom, which you've probably heard that term. Shalom, peace, completeness, perfection. So he's also a king of peace. Just 
just by the fact that he's the king of the place of peace, Salem, Shalom. He's the king of righteousness, the king of peace. Only by name, only by place. Not, there's no other description, no evidence that he's a, either in, in actual life. But you know, this idea of peace, soundness, denotes that he's made peace with his enemies. He has no enemies. Now, we've got to talk a little bit about this story of Melchizedek. I'm going to go to Genesis 14. This is where it shows up. And just we'll read it a little. We'll just read it. That's, like I said, when the author of Hebrews makes these allusions, it's helpful to go back and read where he's getting this stuff from. He's not pulling this out of the air. He's seeing something in the text, and he's, he's saying, look at this, look at this. So, Genesis 14, 17 through 20. This is the only other place Melchizedek shows up. After his return from the defeat of Shedelab, Laomar and the kings, so he's slaughtering, he actually slaughtered five kings, which is pretty interesting that Abraham, little Abraham with his herds was able to beat up five kings, one of whom was the king of Sodom, by the way. And the reason he did this is because Lot lived in Sodom and Sodom had been taken prisoner with the king of Sodom and all these other kings, and he's rescuing Lot. He doesn't care about the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom is going to be destroyed in a couple chapters anyway because his Totally wicked city, right? So Abraham goes out and just rescues his nephew. And in the process, he beats up all these kings and actually kills them, slaughters them. In the valley of Shaba, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, king of righteousness, king of peace, brought out bread and wine that should allude to something, too. Someone else brought out bread and wine for some other reason. <laughs> he was priest of God Most High. He's described as a priest. He's described as a king. Verse 19, And he blessed him, Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He's delivered peace to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. End of story. That's all we know about Melchizedek from Genesis 14. That's it. And the author is saying, he's the king of righteousness, he's the king of peace. And then he says something that is a little bit like, huh? Are you stretching it a little bit? Says he's, well, let's read it back in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, Genesis told us nothing about his mother or his father or his genealogy. That's true. The author of Hebrews is latching on to that and saying, it's like an argument for silence. There's nothing in Genesis 14 that says anything about a genealogy. Because we know we don't know where he came from or where he goes afterwards, because he's never mentioned again until Psalm 110, he's like someone whose priesthood continues because we don't know when it began or when it ended. He just sort of shows up, 
blesses Abraham and disappears. And the author of Hebrews is latching on to that, saying there's something special about that. He abides a priest forever. This part of the phrase. He's getting, he's hinting at this forever thing. Okay? He's already talked about the oath, now he's forever. And he's also about the order of Melchizedek. What he's doing now is he's explaining what is the order of Melchizedek. The order of Melchizedek are people who are like kings of righteousness and people who are like kings of peace and people who have no beginning or end and live forever is what he's saying. The order of Melchizedek is the stuff he's listing here in these first four verses. They happen to be priests who we don't know where they come from. They just He's, he's made these three connections, but the one he's really, really most interested in making is this one, the forever part. Why? Because Psalm 110 made a big deal of it. That's actually why he's doing this. Psalm 110, how, 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 why would you even think Melchizedek still lives? Because Psalm 110 suggests it. The order of Melchizedek, this is after, according to, apparently is an order of priests who live forever. The way he said, you are a priest forever, like the order of Melchizedek, according to. So Psalm 110 is actually suggesting that Melchizedekian, this Melchizedekian priest still is a priest somehow, some way. His priesthood has never ended. And you say, how can that be? Well, Psalm 110, God declared Jesus to be that. And the author of Hebrews is latching upon that to make a case, not so much about Melchizedek, but about Jesus, really. Jesus' priesthood will be forever. And Melchizedek's priesthood is a shadowy type of sort of like what Jesus will be like. So whether Melchizedek still is out there, a priest somewhere, and we haven't seen him yet, he's 2,000, almost 3,000 years old now, that we can't answer that. He's probably, if, anywhere, if, he's, still, if he's still doing priestly work, it's probably before the throne with Jesus up there. Right now, we can't speculate. But the author of Hebrews doesn't really care about where this Melchizedek is. He's just saying, according to Psalm 110, Jesus is like him in the sense that he lives forever. And the other thing he makes, I list there at the bottom of that list of four. King of Salem, King of Righteousness. Unknown origin, indication of his end. No indication of his end. As Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils to him, he, he just decides, I've just captured five kings and I'm going to give it 10% of it to you. Like, what did he have to do with the battle? So obviously Abraham has a high respect for this man, this priest, and he's, he goes and, Abraham, and, and he's giving a tenth of the spoils to him. And the author's going to latch on to that next. But that's what he does in... Um, the next few verses, 5 through 10. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office, he's comparing them. He's basically saying this Melchizedek is greater than Levi. And the reason he's greater than Levi is several reasons. Listed, I listed them for you there. They, Levi also receives is commanded by the law to receive tithes. They're commanded. People are required to give tithes to them. Nobody told Abraham he had to give a tithe to Melchizedek. He did that willingly. You take a lesson 
from that for us. We're not commanded to tithe. We should willingly want to. Though they are descended from Abraham, but this man, verse 6, who does not have his descent from them, receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who has the promises. Abraham has the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, that's the Levites. But in this case, by one of whom it is testified that he still lives, basically is what that says. He still lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now that's an interesting statement, but basically what he's saying is, just think of it. Levi is the great-grandson of Abraham. Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, therefore Levi in a sense, pay tithes too. So, Melchizedek's greater than Levi in, in two ways, really. The descent idea, but also that the tithe that he received was different. And, more importantly, one still lives. And the Levites, according to Scripture, keep dying. They don't live. So he's making this case of, once again, he's getting back to the forever idea and that's that's what he's saying in there and there's it's just it's not it's actually not hard to understand if you think about it it's just kind of like okay i think i see his logic here but he's trying to go somewhere with that and now he's gonna he's gonna actually get controversial on him verses 11 through 19 probably would have hit the original audience as a shock because he says something interesting. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? Why have another priest if the Levites were so good, is what he's saying, and we know they're not. Verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. And the reason for that is, the law said, he's going he's to say it right here, for the one of whom these things are spoken, Melchizedek and Jesus, both of them, belong to another tribe. Not allowed by the law, by the way. The law said Levites only. And yet God's saying... Melchizedek was a priest before Levi even existed, and the one I'm installing as a priest via that oath, he's not from Levi. So, in order to do that, God's doing something with his law. He's changing it. And this, this is where Jews would have an issue. God's changing the law? actually a stumbling block for Jews, I believe. It's one of the reasons they can't accept Christ is because... But Moses said, he's not fulfilling the law. He's from Judah. What are you guys talking about? You know, there's, there's conflict here. And he's, he's coming out and saying, this, the law needs to change. <clears throat> the law needs to change. If this is true, 
If what God said is true, and we know it's true, we know it's certain, the law needs to change. Because the law says only people from Levi can be priests, and yet I'm declaring somebody else who's not from Levi. And I'm telling you that that priest is a priest forever, and he's a different kind of priest. He's this guy a priest, and that guy wasn't from Levi either. I'm changing things. God's changing things. And this, this is like, oh, oh, changing things. And that's talking about the tribe. And then he gets to, let's see, verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, talking about Jesus now, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement. The law did not. The law did not even allow him to be a priest. Concerning bodily descent, which implies priests who die out have to be replaced. A temporary repeated priesthood. But by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him. And then he quotes it. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, and he's comparing the two, on the one hand, a former commandment, commandment, the law is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. The law couldn't perfect anything. I'm just reading right there in verse 18 and 19. But on the other hand, a better hope, there's the word hope again, hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. There's the draw near words again, which we've heard throughout Hebrews. Draw near to the throne of grace. And it was not without an oath. Now he's getting back to the oath language. For those who formerly became priests were made without oaths. Oaths did not make them priests. The law did. But God has superseded his law with an oath. And remember, the oath is unchangeable. It's certain. And the law is changeable. It comes to an end because it's useless and weakness. The law that made this priesthood ritual stuff. So your law, Jews, has changed, been changed by the installation of this great high priest. This great high priest has superseded your law. And that's what I mean by controversy. To the original Jewish hearers, they had to wrestle with this. This had to be like, what are you saying? And then verse 20. Jesus the priest who always lives to intercede. Now, the author is going to get into the foreverness and make a big deal of why this is so important. He's already told us why the oath is important. He's told us what the order of Melchizedek means. This last part. Now he's making the big and the biggest deal about this. This is where the strong hope is. You are a priest forever. And just read verse 20 through the end of the chapter, and it's all focused on the forever nature of Jesus, superior to anything the Levites could produce. I'll start in verse 20. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. I read that already. But the one who was made a priest with an oath 
by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a new, better covenant. And that is another foretaste of chapter 8. He keeps throwing these phrases that he doesn't explain yet. He says, oh, by the way, this oath also inaugurated a new covenant. And I'll tell you about it later. But Jesus is the guarantor of it. He's the guarantor. That means he's the steady anchor of it. He's the unchanging, unalterable one who guarantees a better covenant. And that's what he's hinting at in verse 22. He's going to get back and review. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. That's the big point of this. This is what makes Jesus so much better than the rest of them. He continues forever. They didn't. He does. And what are the implications of continuing forever? Verse 25. Which, just to be honest with you, is my personal favorite verse in Hebrews. And if you read it, you probably would. Maybe it's one of your top ten too. Because this is, this is why it's so important that he be a forever priest. This explains why it's important to us. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. That should bring strong encouragement. Because he's forever, he always lives to save completely. To save to the uttermost. He's always, always, always able to save. To save those who draw near. His saving work never ends. Never that's why we have a strong hope. That's why we draw near. When you get the picture of this, he's seated on that mercy seat, inviting us to draw near, and he's always, always, always able to save us from every sin. Every sin. There's always help available. There's always refuge there. It's, it, it never ends. This is forever. And what is he doing while he's sitting on the mercy seat, saving us? He's also interceding for us. Forever. He's praying for us forever. And that's why it's my favorite verse. <laughs> because... He's the forever priest. And there's implications there also. It's interesting, the language is forever. That means in heaven too. Jesus is interceding for us forever in heaven. 
there's, a, there's an idea here that if for whatever reason, and this can't happen, this is impossible for God to lie with the two unchangeable things, for whatever reason he stepped off that throne and stopped interceding, trillions of years from now, heaven would collapse and everybody in it would be destroyed. His intercession is forever. Our entire eternal existence is dependent upon it. And he's there forever, and he'll never, ever, ever, because God's guaranteed it with an oath. God the Father's in on this too. They both want it. That's how secure our salvation is. Now and forever. <clears throat> but there are a few more verses. And I will go over them quickly. And these... Don't excite us as much because they're not personal, but they're actually very important. They're actually very important to why he's sitting on the throne forever and the advantages of being able to sit on this throne forever. And he lists them there in 26. 726. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. That word fitting showed up earlier in Hebrews, by the way, in chapter 2. Remember, it was fitting that he should suffer like us. He should become like us and suffer as a man. Back in chapter 2, verse 10, I think it is. I got it listed there, maybe. And here he uses it again. It's also fitting that we, that we should have this kind of a high priest. And, and what is this high priest like? He's holy, which means he's separate, sacred, in a sense, untouchable. He's innocent, without sin, forever. He can't sin, he'll never sin. He's, on, he's done the work that got him there. He, he's going to stay innocent. He's going to stay unstained forever. Separated from sinners. Now that's, that's actually allusion to his judgment. It's He can keep sin and sinners at bay. No sinners allowed where he's at, which tells you something of what he's got to do with us because we're sinners. And the author of Hebrews hasn't even talked about that yet. That's, it's like, how, how can we get there when we're sinners? And he's, he's separated from sinners and we're sinners. But that's actually a good thing. He's able to keep sin at bay. One of the things Jesus is going to do, and we'll talk about this in the weeks to come, there's two weeks left, he brought an end to sin. He, he brought an end to sin. Sin is no longer a thing because of this work. Now, that'll be explained in chapter 9, which we'll maybe get to next week, probably not to the last week. He's, he's got a sin separation. He's put sin at bay forever. Sin is no longer a thing. And anybody who sins is no longer a thing they're certainly not in the presence of God Almighty and his enthroned Melchizedekian priest. And he's exalted above the heavens, seated at the right hand, as it said in chapter 1, verse 4. Take your seat, verse 1 of, chapter, of Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand. He's exalted. He's right there. And then the last two verses are, are just an interesting little literary, literary connection to bring this section to a close. 
there's some interesting, there's a lot of words he used here. If you compare the last two verses of Hebrews 7 and the first three verses of Hebrews 5, they sound almost the same. He started the high priest discussion with this in Hebrews 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. That's how he started this discussion. He was talking about Levitical priests at the time. Now he says something, the language is very similar, but he's talking about the better high priest. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So there's the words offerings for sin showing up. For the law appoints, appoints, there's the word appoint, the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And it's a contrast, and he uses the same verbiage that chapter 5 did. He introduced it, and here he is, he's closing out his discussion on the great high priest. Jesus is fully qualified as the great high priest. He's fully superior to any other Levitical priest that's ever been. <coughs> and he hints for the first time in this book, this has not been mentioned until he just throws it out there. Verse 27, This, then for those of all his people, since he did this, once for all when he offered up himself. He has not mentioned that until now. And that will be the theme of chapters 8, 9, and 10. He's going to, now that he's established Jesus as the forever high priest, now he's got to get to how did he purify sin? What? How did he do that? Well, he's not only the forever high priest, He's the sacrifice. The priest sacrificed himself. It's, what? But that's what it is. And he hints at it right there. And he's baited us for chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. With little phrases sprinkled throughout. Okay, that's time to bring it to an end. So I will, I'll pray. And we'll close it out. Jim, could I introduce perhaps what is an improper and ignorant question? Why is Melchizedek not Jesus? And and you don't mention that he brought the wine and the bread when Abraham was coming. If you want to believe he's a pre-incarnate Jesus, you can. He's like Melchizedek, Hebrews says. And is he a pre-incarnate Jesus? Perhaps. That's, that's a possible way of doing it. So that would be my short answer. <laughs> Any other? Short. Any other questions? Go ahead. Well, it's not really a question, but just an observation that and it's pretty obvious. The other way that Jesus is superior to the Old Testament priest is that being of the order of Melchizedek, he's also a king. 
And the yes, old, yes. The Old Testament priests were not kings. And the author doesn't even make a deal of that. He never uses the word king about Jesus, but we see it. Just like I think we see the bread and the wine. We see other connections that he's not even getting to. And he's wanting us to kind of see that. I think he's, he wants us to think about bread and wine. King. There's, a lot of, there's, a, there's other connections that he doesn't even have time to get to here. So yeah, he's, he's focusing on the priesthood because that's where the encouragement is. Kingship is not an encouraging, as encouraging because a king can bring... Bring the pain. He can. He can. He can bring the discipline. He can bring the punishment. Like uh, we've had enough of that in the first few chapters, right? <laughs> and, and he does talk about it in the sense that he says, "I've been, I've enthroned you at my right hand." So that's kind of a king language. But he, he he calls him son instead of king. The son is better than a king, is what I think the implication. Being the son of God, seated at the right hand as a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, is far superior to any king. So yeah, he's the king of kings. He's the son of king of the son over all the kings. Would be the Hebrews' way of saying it. But yeah. All right, let me let me close it up. Lord Father, thank you, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word. Please let it strongly encourage us to draw near to you, knowing that you always live. Your son always lives to save us to the uttermost and make intercession for us, and that will never end. Please encourage your people with this. In Jesus' name, amen.